0: In this episode, I'm joined by Gregory Bland, mystic, artist, author, and initiate into the Iniyati and haveti Jirahi orders of Sufism. Gregory reveals the rich history and practices of Sufism, including meditation techniques, Zikr, and the dream practices of the haveti Jirahi. Gregory also recounts his own spiritual journey from evangelical Christianity to Gurdjieff to encounters with great sheikhs of the 20th century, such as pir Vilayat Khan, Sheikh Nur and Musafer Effendi. Gregory also explains the four levels of religion, connections between Sufism and Kabbalah, and discusses the possibility of an allegorical reading of the Gospels. So without further ado, Gregory Bland. Gregory Bland, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. You're a Sheikh of the Halveti Jarahi order and a long standing member of the Inayati order also. And you've had some really uh, remarkable teachers and I'd like to ask you about them uh, and about your path in quite some detail. But actually, I think it would be interesting at the beginning if we could talk a bit about Sufism in terms of its history, its practices, and how it sits within the wider context of Islam and world traditions. You've written several books on that subject, on the history of Sufism, including two volumes on the history of that tradition, The Garden of Mystic Love, volumes one and two. So can you talk a little about Sufism in terms of its history practices and how it sits in the wider context of Islam and world religions.
1: Sure. Uh, we uh, often define Sufism as the path of love or the path of the heart. And so, uh, whereas uh, when people think of of uh, Islam, normally they think of the, the Shariat and the uh, five times a day prayers and the, the uh, fasting during ramadan and the various uh, rules like that uh sufism is um the path uh, the shariat is called the main road of the religion and the uh sufism is called the tariqat, the uh path that leads off of that into the uh the more mystical understanding or the uh the path of the heart uh, one way uh, that I think is helpful is is to um, remember the uh, Sermon on the Mountain where Jesus said, you have been told an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, you must love your enemy. Uh, That's the the Tariqat is that, um, that path of love and generosity and and beauty uh, within uh, uh, Islam But uh, it can be defined much broader than uh, something within the annals of historical Islam. Even uh, uh, in Islamic Sufism, they say the the first uh, prophet or the first uh, uh, person to receive the uh, message of, of the divine was Adam and Eve. And so, uh, and, and then of course, uh, Abraham is the father of the three religions: um, Christianity, Judaism, and and Islam. And so he's also considered. Islam is considered to be like the religion, uh, the the uh, the pure religion of of Abraham before um, the Mosaic Law and uh, the and the time of Jesus and the historical Muhammad. Uh, So uh, Sufism is uh, most broadly defined as wisdom, the pure wisdom that uh, flows to all of the religious traditions. And um, it uh, was uh, very active uh, before Islam in the uh, uh, Neoplatonic philosophy, and and so we we call it the, the perennial wisdom sometimes. And so Sufis would identify uh, with that as well. And so um, I uh, am a member of two different orders that have a slightly different uh, orientation uh, to uh, Sufism. Uh, one is the uh, Inayati order, used to be called the uh, Sufi order, or Sufi order in the West. And uh, that those teachings go back to Hazra Knight Khan, who was the uh, first one to bring Sufism to the West. Uh, In 1910, he uh, brought the Sufi message. And at that time, he he saw that uh, people were were kind of Islamophobic, so to speak. So when he talked about uh, Islam or the Prophet Muhammad, uh, people uh, didn't have a very good reaction. And, And so he chose to veil Islam in a more, uh, in its more, most universal uh, clothing. And in that way, uh, he came from India where, where the uh, cultures already merge, and uh, often uh, Hindus and Muslims uh, meet together in, in worship. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, Hasra and Ad Khan introduce Sufism to the West as uh, the universal, uh, mysticism of all the religions. And so the practices in uh, the Inayati uh, Sufism, uh, which has several branches uh, now, uh, have, uh, have really emphasized uh, both like Buddhist and yogic meditation and breathing practices. Uh, the Zikr, uh, which is a, a special form of remembrance uh, in uh, Islamic Sufism and uh, uh, practices from the Hesychasts and the Desert Fathers and Mothers of uh, Christianity, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And there's even a, 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 a worship service called the Universal Worship, in which all of these scriptures are put on together on one altar with candles lit for each of them, and the scriptures are read, and uh, then there's a, a sermon that kind of ties together what do all the religions say about a particular topic? And and often there's also, it's adorned with music and and even uh, dance, spiritual dance, which is also part of the uh, tradition. Um, It's not technically looked upon as dance in a kind of frivolous way, but sacred movement. And so uh, uh, Sufism, I would say love and wisdom are the two really uh, uh, poles of of Sufism. In Islamic Sufism, then you get more into the uh, container that was developed uh, after the time of the prophet. He had uh, various companions who were were kind of mystical in nature. And one of them, uh, Hazrat Ali, was the one we consider the father of, of the mystic tradition, and uh, that um, uh, Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him, transmitted many of the mystical uh, teachings of Islam to Hasrat Ali, and then it was passed from student to student, and that what's called a Silsala or a chain of transmission, uh, that uh, Uh, flows through the the centuries uh, down to the present. And so, uh, for instance, as a sheikh, uh, I received what's called an ijazit. It's a little scroll that has, um, uh, I don't know how many names, maybe 30 generations of teachers uh, from the prophet uh, down to uh, my own sheikh. And and so the... uh, after the time of the Prophet Muhammad, the, it took a couple of centuries before the uh, scholars of Islam uh, codified the, the sacred law. And, uh, and issued, uh, th- there was many, uh, th- there was four main schools of jurisprudence who decided what were the uh, fundamental Rules and and uh, teachings and moral guidelines of Islam and what did the Prophet uh, say and what is in the Quran all that's drawn. At the same time, the mystical schools uh, developed, uh, 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 and both of these appeared around the uh, 10th century. The beginning of the 10th century, uh, particularly in Baghdad, there were. Uh, the first uh, Sufi schools appeared that were Islamic uh, Sufi schools and uh, and so uh, one other thing I, I would point out is in my book uh, Garden of mystic love I I realized that there was a progression through time of the teachings and so the the very earliest uh, Sufis uh, Islamic Sufis were kind of Gruff ascetics who denied the body and, and were very much sort of sort of like yogis, uh, fasting and and, and doing uh, a, a lot of things to become literally uh, the, the poor in spirit and, and giving away everything they had and so forth. And with time, uh, various Sufis appeared who really began to bring out the love element uh, and. Uh, a famous martyr named uh, Al-Halaj, who was uh, actually martyr of love uh, in, in uh, 10th century Baghdad. And, um, and then a, a, a very wonderful uh, woman saint, Rabia Al-Adwia, shortly after his time, who um, uh, was symbolically uh, uh, depicted as carrying around a torch and a pail of water Uh, through the uh, streets of Bursa, and they said, oh, oh, Rabia, why are you carrying these? And she said, I would like to uh, uh, light a fire to uh, uh, heaven and pour water on the fires of hell so that all the believers become lovers of the divine for the the sake of the divine and not for the uh, the hope of heaven or the fear of hell. And so she said the divine love is, is so much greater than the, the kind of paltry uh, thing we make of it as a sort of a, a desire for paradise, uh, uh, some kind of personal escape from reality, something like that. And so there was this blossoming of mystic love, that's, that's why I entitled the book The Garden of Mystic Love, and that comes down to the modern times, and, and uh, one of my sheikhs, uh, Muzaffar Affendi, uh, um, who was the 19th sheikh of the Grand Sheikh of the Helveti Jirahi, was uh, a, uh, a, a great lover, and uh, he, he was really known for the, the love that he inspired in, in, in people. And uh, when he came to this country, uh, sometimes he would go on the radio and people would call and, and want to argue about uh, some atrocities that had happened in the past uh, in Islam. And he would say, I'm not here to argue about blind men fighting blind men. I'm here to to uh, talk about love and the possibilities of, of, of humanity uh, reaching its full potential. So uh, that that's how I would uh, answer your question uh, about uh, how I see Sufism.
0: That's very fascinating. I'm curious in, I suppose, both your experience and historically, common layman's understanding of these two paths, the, the main path and the mystic path. The, the path. Sure of the yes. Yeah, that seems to be a dichotomy that's read into all kinds of religious contexts. It's read sometimes into Christianity it seems to be present in Judaism, certainly in, we can see it in the Old Testament, this sort of two strands. And sometimes they're working together, but more often than not, there's some conflict. It can also be seen perhaps in Indic tantrism, that style. So I'm curious what you think about that, if that's a bit of a simplification or if that's a reading or if that's a view that you resonate with at all.
1: Actually, there's uh, four levels. uh that uh, we find in most of the religions. Uh, there, there's the, uh, the shariat, which is the base level, the literal level on which uh, the scriptures are, are taken. And then there's the Tariqat, which is the heart level. And then there is the marifat, which is the mental level, which has to do with our uh, mental paradigms and, and the way of uh, realization. And then the Hakikat is the absolute truth beyond all religion, beyond all forms, and uh, uh, it's the complete formless uh, dimension. And so these four levels, we find them in um, in yoga, and in uh, in Kabbalah, and in Sufism. And I go into them uh, extensively in, uh, in my uh, most recent book, uh, When Oceans Merge. Um, and so, uh, as far as the, the main two that people think of, uh, Shariat and Tariqat, uh, in, in the helveti Jirahi order, when the, this uh, question has been asked, uh, the answer is that there is no, uh, no wall of separation between the, these two. They are uh, complementary, they go hand in hand. But the the tariqat uh, the the Sufic understanding goes to a deeper level, and so it's it's the same. Uh, so, uh, uh, in uh, Sufis in Islam still do all of the five pillars of Islam, but they they have a maybe a. Uh, uh, they may read between the lines uh, more and are not so literal. And so uh, allegorical and symbolic understanding uh, of reality becomes uh, much more important. And so it's the same, the same Quran, uh, the same uh, sacred scriptures, but a uh, a different level of uh, hermeneutic applied to it and uh, a deeper level of, of the heart. And so it, it it's really the difference between the uh, outer manifested uh, uh, rules of the religion and the spirit, uh, like uh, St. Paul makes that uh, distinction between the spirit and the letter of the law. So they do come together and, and then some people put walls between them. And uh, I think that's putting up a false, uh, Dichotomy um, certainly uh, Sufis don't want to be associated with violent interpretations of Islam, like uh, jihadist uh, rhetoric that uh, that uh, interprets uh, various scriptures to uh, to advocate violence. And we find that in the Old Testament as well, and uh, and so for the Sufis the, those. First of all, many of those in, in the Quran, the uh, those problematic passages can actually be interpreted in, in a, uh, if they're put back in their original context, they uh, are, are far less uh, uh, warlike than uh, what uh, some of the uh, extremists imagine.
0: Could you give an example of one of those problematic passages The way it could be read in an extremist fashion and how you might read it differently if you contextualized it.
1: Absolutely. There's um, a scripture uh, in the uh, ninth uh, chapter of the Quran, which is uh, known as the verse of the sword. And the when it's taken out of context, it says, uh, go fight to slay the idolaters wherever you find them. Uh, And Uh, when you go back and look at the context in which it was said, it is talking about uh, the Prophet Muhammad made uh, peace treaties with various tribes. And uh, uh, these treaties allowed for people to live at peace. Uh, And of course, the the Arabs were a very warlike tribe, and so they depended on on these uh, peace treaties to be kept. And some of the uh, tribes uh, went back on their word and broke it. And uh, there was uh, a time when the uh, Nescient Muslims were were fairly vulnerable and they were being attacked by uh, the uh, people of Mecca who rejected uh, the Prophet Muhammad because his uh, this way, uh, really represented an end to uh, the organized religion that they were so invested in. And when they attacked uh, some of the, uh, these tribes who had uh, vowed to uh, stand with the Prophet, uh, 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 turned and attacked from the rear, and uh, they barely survived this. And so this verse is talking about, uh, it says, Make, keep the peace with those who have kept their peace treaties, But the ones who have turned their back on the peace treaty, uh, you must stand against them and be prepared to uh, to uh, find them and and kill them wherever uh, they are. If they attack you, you must uh, retaliate. And so uh, and and then it adds, uh, interestingly, it says, but those who offer peace again and vow not to attack you. You are obliged to stop fighting them and make peace. And if you find them injured uh, uh, on the battlefield, you you are—it's incumbent on you to uh, lead them off to safety. And so there's this kind of chivalry that is uh, really the uh, the more accurate understanding, as the Sufis understand. Uh, the the, uh, the inner jihad is uh, also. Meaning that we are battling with our own um, selfish nature. What what the Sufis call the nafs al the instinctual animal self, which uh, is uh, by nature uh, very selfish and uh, puts self first, and uh, and uh, is the is is problematic for our spiritual unfoldment, and so the. Uh, the Sufis look at the jihad not as uh, going around looking for outer enemies, although those must be addressed if they're attacking you or, or they are a threat, but uh, the inner jihad is really the, uh, the important thing to. And uh, uh, Hothra Naik Khan especially had a, a very interesting take on, on the inner jihad. He, he said, this uh, idea that you must kill the ego or, an, or annihilate it somehow is, is not correct. Uh, the, it is more like the relationship of, a, uh, of a, a person to an unruly animal, like their horse. You must train it to serve a higher purpose. And so that the lower self must become the servant of the higher self. Uh, and so that you establish the uh, master within. Uh, and so nothing is killed. You can't actually kill the ego. Uh, uh, the ego doesn't really exist. It's a relative uh, conception or formation. And uh, that's, of course, part of the Sufi path is the uh, training of the, of the nafs or, or the uh, ego, or, or we us call it the conventional self or the historical self. And and so uh, that's really uh, where the Sufis go with uh, with that, but uh, on the outer plane of uh, of fighting one's enemies, uh, Islam has a, uh, a directive that says that uh, you are it's incumbent upon you to uh, forbid evil when you see it uh, and to uh, and do good. And so let, let's say you were walking down the street and you saw uh, you know someone being uh, attacked or something it, it would be incumbent upon a muslim to to try to break that up and stop it and not to just walk by and say well it's it's their problem and so that can be taken on a you know on you know a national level uh, to say you know we, we must uh, uh, pursue justice and then it comes down to, to kind of subjective uh, almost egoistic decisions of, uh, are we going to be like, for instance, uh, in, in American policy, do we want to be the world's policeman or or do we uh, uh, stay out of other people's affairs? And so that comes down to, I think, to personal uh, judgment. And, uh, and so Islam also has a, um, it's not completely rule bound. There's also the uh, um, something called ichtehad which is um, your own spiritual insight, and so it is incumbent upon people to uh, seek the inner divine guidance and and come to their own uh, decision. What what uh, what their soul feels uh, actually is just, rather than uh, mechanically. Uh, looking to uh outer directed rules and so there is a place for uh, uh, for individual uh initiative and discretion um, there there's something that in in the um uh, middle ages at some point the the uh, ulama the, the jurists, uh, had completed all of their uh, formulations of the sacred law and they said we're closing the book of uh, uh of jurisprudence. After that, uh, no one else can come back and and change it. And uh, in our times, we're seeing uh, Muslims saying, uh, "I don't accept this. Uh, wh- whoever said they closed the book, because uh, we have to update these things uh, in every generation. And so we're we're reopening it. We're reinterpreting things." Uh, in order to uh, make something relevant for our times. We, we can't, we're not uh, riding around on camels anymore. We have to uh, face that fact and, and see uh, what is the spirit of Islam and uh, how does that work. And so, uh, for instance, Muzaffar Effendi, when he came to this country, um, he came from uh, Istanbul in Turkey, where Adatürk had uh, closed down the uh, Sufi orders uh, and really inhibited Islam back in 1924-25, about the same time that Stalin was cracking down uh, on uh, Orthodox Christians in um, in Russia. And so Sufism has been actually uh, technically illegal uh, ever since then in Turkey. And so it kind of had to go underground. And Mustafa Effendi. Uh, opened it up to a certain extent. And when he brought to America, he was, he fell in love with uh, the American uh, ideals of spiritual liberty and uh, protections of, of, uh, that everyone had the right to worship in their own way. And he said, this is exactly what Islam actually is teaching. Because Islam has this um, doctrine of the people of the book, that all of uh, Christians and Jews and, um, Actually, all of the prophets, um, the Quran says that uh, the, this message of unity and love has been brought to every nation on earth. And so there was, there's no people that haven't had their own uh, uh, prophets or um, sages who have revealed the divine truth in their own time and culture. And so it, uh, uh, Islam actually is universal and accepts... Uh, these others, although many people in Islam don't have a really uh, clear understanding of that, and they uh, they may even speak against Christianity and Judaism, and and not realize that they're they're uh, going they're violating the the real spirit of Islam, which is 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 uh, very universal. The problem is that people. Uh, limited egos come in and narrow down religious teachings. We see that uh, across the board in all uh, religions. And so uh, the Sufis are always trying to uh, uh, dig down below the surface and, and get that water of life uh, that is pure and, uh, and renew uh, religion to make it vital and get us back in touch with the, the real source of our being.
0: And that kind of Perennialism is something that your main teachers in particular have emphasized. So would it be fair to say that you would see that, uh, the conflicts that people see between the Tariqat and the Sharia are not fundamental conflicts between those two paths, but conflicts in the interpretation of those two paths?
1: The question, is, do I see a, a, condom, a fundamental conflict between them?
0: I'm su- trying to summarize what you said, by, and saying that this commonly cited uh, tension between the Tariqat and the Sharia. Paths or the mystic and the religious, as it sometimes cast more generally, you don't see that as a fundamental conflict between those paths, but more conflict of interpretation by different groups.
1: Yes, and and um, for instance, um, in the um, in the 18th century, um, the uh, followers of Abdul Wahhab uh, took over uh, Saudi Arabia with the uh, help of the British and. Uh, they they took it back from the Ottoman Empire and um, spread the teachings a uh, more uh, fundamentalist uh, we could call it that's not really the technical term for it uh, but um, it, a teaching that they went around and de- and uh, and destroyed uh, Sufi shrines and so forth and and they s- said that um, Sufism was illegitimate it's something uh, foreign to Islam that was added, it uh, was imported from somewhere else. And, uh, and so this uh, became the, the prevalent interpretation in Saudi Arabia, and then at, in the in 1920s when the, the, they became very uh, oil rich, they began to export that all over the world. And so this narrowed down uh, kind of uh, Shariotic uh, interpretation, has uh, taken root um, uh, all over the world in, in the mosques of America and so forth. And so uh, for hundreds of years, for, for the centuries, uh, especially during the time of the Ottoman Empire, it, it was a much more open and uh, and there was uh, the, many of the sultans of the uh, Ottoman Empire were members of Sufi orders. And, uh, and so, uh, from the point of view of, of the Wahhabis or uh, the Salafis is, is what they call themselves, uh, they they see themselves as going back to a kind of a purist Islam of the of the seventh uh, century uh, and trying to do everything exactly the way the Prophet Muhammad did it, and it's. Uh, there's, for instance, uh, there's there's no uh, record of the Prophet Muhammad ever eating watermelon, so they say, well, it's against the Sharia to eat watermelon because we we, we don't think the Prophet ever sanctioned it. And and th- these are the kind of uh, absurd things you get when you become very literalist. And, uh, and so uh, th- there's this doctrine... Uh, in Islam, that uh, you cannot add anything to the religion. Uh, it's called bidah. It's like you're you're innovating. It's it's this cardinal sin. And so uh, the Sufis aren't so so worried about that. They they don't. First of all, they're reinterpreting. They don't see it as uh, adding anything foreign. They're they're bringing out the the true spirit of love that is in Islam, and uh, and its others who who may have a more uh, uh, narrow point of view from the Sufi perspective, uh, and of course you can have sectarian Sufis as well. It, it takes all kinds. But uh, I'm speaking from the, uh, the the most Sufis are are fairly broad in nature. And uh, so uh, when uh, one of my sheikhs, uh, Sheikh Noor, was asked this question uh, be- about the, these these um the Sufis versus uh, regular Islam he said uh, oh, think about uh, Saint Francis if you went to and asked him uh, what is it you're doing that's different from Christianity he would say, what are you talking about this, this is the soul of Christianity I'm I'm, I'm living it And so uh, that's very much the uh, the same uh, we, it's kind of an analog to uh, what Sufis are doing within uh, Islam, but Sufism can be within all of the uh, religions, and and like I say, this this, um, this uh, fourfoldness of reality, the four worlds, uh, really does shine through in in all the traditions, and, and we we see definite correlations
0: there. Hmm, that's fascinating. What, if any, connection do you see between Sufism, the spirit of Sufism, and say, Indic? tantric thought and practice?
1: Well, um, that would have been a good question for uh, Sheikh Noor because he was really a a, a deeply studied practitioner of uh, of Tibetan uh, Buddhism and uh, uh, went deeply into uh, the the tantric teachings. And so the the tantra tends to be maybe a a little, it can have a physical aspect uh, of of tantric lovemaking or something which would be a little accepted by the sufis on a more uh, uh, metaphorical level there's a level in which the soul and lord uh, merge into the supreme identity and and so i think that's where the commonality lies that there's this uh, union and so the uh, the um the analog of, of human love uh is is very much like this uh this union of the uh, feminine soul with the uh masculine energy of of the divine even though the the, the that's not to say that the divine has any gender uh i, I don't want to suggest that um but i'm saying um islam uh, means submission some people have. Uh, problem with that word, but it's, it's, it's sort of like uh, sugar melting in water or something. It's, it's um, the, the soul uh, finding its true home and, and sort of melting into the into love. And, and so it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a harsh thing where you have to cut something off. And uh, it's more like lovemaking. And so the Sufis call uh, God the Beloved, and uh, and much of the Sufi poetry addresses God, all oh, Beloved. Uh, so the more shariotic uh, 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 Muslims uh, I think that goes too far. Is how how dare you say God is, is lover that 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 crosses the bounds? But that's really uh, the way the Sufis relate to God. Uh, there's all these different. Uh, metaphors that we can use. Uh, we, we kind of uh, in our Western culture, we, we've, we've thought of God, the Father as, as, and maybe a king sitting on a throne somewhere, ruling over things. But uh, there's, there's, um, there's other metaphors that uh, we can explore, such as uh, the beloved and the divine mother and uh, uh, the the uh feminine energy more and more is being brought out in uh in in modern uh, Sufism because uh, the the patriarchy has, has kind of suppressed the feminine and we we go back to the time of the Prophet Muhammad we see that he was uh, very much opening the doors of a uh, freedom for women and uh, uh, a, a generation or, or two after him uh, they they Uh, brought the curtain right back down and and kind of went back to the old patriarchal uh, interpretations. But uh, uh, one of the prophet's uh, wives, Aisha, is said to have uh, transmitted uh, 50% of the sayings of the prophet. Uh, But uh, the the scholars only used about 13% of what she transmitted. so uh, this this um, God as uh, as mother as the uh, the one who nourishes us. Um, there's a famous saying that a prophet said, "Paradise lies at the feet of the mother," and so there was this real reference for um, the mother, and we can think of Mother Earth and the whole um, uh, movement of uh, ecology that. Uh, can be uh, buttressed by uh, uh, becoming more and more in touch with our feminine side and the uh, and the feminine nurturance. Uh, the Quran uh, speaks of God always as Rahman and Rahim, and this uh, Arabic word, uh, the root word Rah means womb, and so God is like the uh, mystic womb of creation and. Uh, the the uh, creation uh, emanates forth, just like a mother would give birth. And there's uh, it's um, there's there's no separation. It's it's not like uh, God is um, a carpenter that uh, hammers together creation out of wood or something. But it's emanated out of itself, and that's very much like uh, Brahman uh, assuming uh, the different forms of. Uh, uh created uh, beings and and uh and, and so we can see the whole world as a manifestation of divine grace and divine beauty and that the the world itself is full of the divine signs uh, sort of like uh, seeing the tracks of a bear in the snow we we, we realize that uh, the glory of a sunset and uh, um, uh, the vastness of space all of these uh are signs uh, to uh, show us the uh, that we are living in divine reality it's, it's like uh, saint paul says in god we live and move and have our being that's that's the motto of the sufis as
0: well hmm. that's fascinating one of the ways in which i've heard tantra indic tantra and sufism compared is in terms of the different levels of meaning the layers of meaning the hidden and secret meanings also, the role of transmission and of the guru, of the merging of one with the guru its guru yoga practices seem to be at least at least at first glance, some shared practice there or some shared um, method, I suppose. I'm wondering if you could give an example of a classic practice that people would associate with Islam that the Sufis also do, but see it, as you say, reading between the lines or might see it more allegorically or metaphorically.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think the, um, what is called zikr or uh, remembrance, divine remembrance, uh, would be the uh, quintessential uh, practice and, and a good example of that. Uh, <clears throat> so the Arabic words are la ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah, and, uh, and so literally uh, the first word la means no, and the, the next phrase uh, ilahi means uh, no divinity or no gods exist so it's saying the first half of the of the statement says uh, no gods exist and then then it says illallah except the one being allah uh, in arabic of course christians also say allah for for uh for the divine so it's saying nothing uh, exist except uh, the one being, and so that that in, from the Sufi point of view, well, uh, let me give you the literal point of view. Uh, uh, all the all the other gods are fake, and uh, only uh, the national god Allah of the Arabs uh, is the real McCoy. <laughs> so that, that would be the the most limited possible understanding. And, and, and it's a little like the understanding that many people might attribute to that in Islam. But for the Sufis, it means uh, nothing exists, including uh, one's own ego or separate selves. So we can use the analog of uh, of, uh, of physics to see uh, in quantum physics, we we know that uh, when you we get down to the a subatomic level, uh, no uh, individual uh, particles exist. There's only uh, waves and uh, uh, and the, the sort of turning of um, of, of the uh, subatomic uh, particles, and and so reality is a little bit like that. If we look, for instance, at the uh, uh, the turning of a, a, a propeller a blade, we we see what appears to be a circle, but when it stops, uh, it, it, we see that it's it's simply the motion in time that gives us that uh, uh, sense of something solid. And so, our our bodies uh, on the physical level uh, are are really um, not solid and uh, and are. Uh, Mental conception of who we are is also a a transient formation that uh, has no uh, real reality. It's just a uh, relative, uh, relatively real, let's say. And so, uh, when the Sufis say "La ilaha illallah," they're saying no. Uh, The the world is, as I see it, is a kind of maya, an illusion. It's not the way that the ego uh, believes it is. And then, uh, illallah, only the divine uh, exists. And so we exist as uh, expressions of the divine. But because we uh, are conditioned to uh, accept a a very limited uh, belief in who we are, we, we have uh, an exaggerated uh, sense of the otherness of God and believe that we are uh, simply uh, finite uh, uh, creatures and could not possibly house the uh, the the divine uh, immanence. But uh, for the Sufis, uh, God is both transcendent and imminent. And, uh, and so Sufism is full of these paradoxes. And, and so uh, this this statement "La, la ilahe is is really a kind of no yes dichotomy. And th- there, there's even um, in English a, a zikr of opposites, where where you you can say uh, yes and no, and dark and light, and tall and short. You go on and on until uh, and you start uh, if you start saying. Uh, and long, and short, and uh, so that and starts to become the conjunctive, uh, uh, integrating those two, and you see that they're not so separate, they're like uh, two poles of one uh, uh, reality or two sides of a coin, and, and so the, the world of opposites is actually uh, uh, a part of this greater unity, and so this practice of, of zikr, la la illallah, is uh bringing us back to to unity back to our uh true uh reality and and kind of breaking through the veils that uh that hide the divine light and then we as uh on the, the the path we began to discover this divine light uh within um in uh Orthodox Christianity, it's called a theosis, uh, uh, the, sort of the divinization. Uh, one of my teachers, Reb Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, uh, was really a strong advocate of Teilhard de Chardin. And this, he had this idea that um, the, the whole creation was progressing toward uh, a divinization of the universe that uh, we are meant to uh, discover our own uh, divine nature and uh, and so this dichotomy of, that we have the limited obviously we have the, the limited human nature uh, and no one's denying that but there's also this uh, secret glory uh, that uh, we also manifest but we uh, um, we we uh, um, are unable to accept it uh, at first because it, it just seems contrary to uh, uh, people who say what what do you mean you're God you know and so uh, Sufis don't don't like to, to to just state it so baldly, but uh, say um, nothing exists but divine reality la ilaha illallah that's that's uh, the Sufi creed. And so that that's the same creed for uh, Shariadic Muslims and uh, uh, for uh, uh, Sufis. And also, I, sh- I should say remembrance is also remembrance of our uh, of our true nature and our true heavenly uh, uh, birthright. Uh, one of my teachers, Pierre Vilayat Khan, used to speak of uh, the cosmic celebration in the heavens. and he said, uh, we're uh, lost in our, our problems and storms in our teacups, and we're forgetting the big show, the cosmic celebration that is happening all around us. And, and so uh, he advised, you know, attuning to this uh, acts of glorification in which we would really begin to uh, get in touch with, uh, with these uh, divine qualities in ourselves. And, and actually, in, in Islam, uh, uh, this is another whole area of practice is the divine qualities, the divine names. And so there are 99 names uh, uh, listed in, in the Quran and there, there's many more names, but uh, uh, we consider these qualities that uh, the, the human being is composed of. And so uh, while, while the divine uh, being remains transcendent of the creation it it said uh, that the creation is composed of the divine attributes of of love, of power, of light, of majesty, of uh, humility, uh, compassion, uh, and uh, it's uh, uh, all of the opposites. It's not just the the, the gentle, nice uh, names, but uh, also the the very powerful forms of, of the divine, we, uh, we have all of these inherent in our being. And part of the path is to uh, uh, bring these uh, from being recessive to, uh, to, to really a shining forth. And, uh, and so that's, that's another uh, aspect of the path.
0: Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Thank you. Let's uh, change tack slightly and talk about your personal story. I'm curious about your early life. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about your upbringing and how it was you first became interested in these things.
1: Yes, um, well, I was born into a, a fairly religious family. Uh, they they were uh, evangelical Christians. Uh, I had a, a paternal grandfather who was a, a pastor of a, a Wesleyan church in upstate New York and uh, a maternal grandmother who, uh, founded the uh, first rescue mission in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And, uh, and so um, I went to church regularly and so forth. Uh, I can't say that I uh, always enjoyed that. And, and uh, but I uh, early had, uh, was imbibed, I think, with uh, religious feelings. And um, I, I think, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a soul level. Sometimes we're born into the family that, uh, is uh is right for us and uh and so at, uh, at during adolescence I, I began to sort of um, become more skeptical of the theology of of the church and um and and began to read uh books like on the historical G- the quest of the historical jesus and and things like that uh higher biblical criticism to try to uh, get at the the actual uh, uh, historical foundations of, of uh, what was being taught. And uh, by the time I got to college, I had uh, kind of decided to, to just set religion aside. And uh, it was the uh, uh, end of the uh, sort of um, hippie countercultural movement, uh, early 70s, and so uh, I went to uh, uh, Peabody Vanderbilt, uh, and uh, was in the. Uh, I was getting a music degree with an art minor, and I was hanging around with kind of countercultural types, uh, and uh, and so I went through this period of, of being kind of um, a cool and and uh, rebellious, but it didn't take too long, um, maybe uh, five, six, seven years before uh, I again, the the soul was was kind of calling me to uh, a deeper uh, understanding of life. And uh, the the first uh, spiritual teachers that I uh, related to, uh, back before the days of uh, cable TV and internet, uh, we only had three networks, uh, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And uh, uh, one of them actually played a, uh, uh, a film of Alan Watts uh, uh, giving, uh, it was one of his late lectures uh, in California, he was out uh, in the mountains behind his home in, in California, and uh, it really spoke to my wife and I, we, 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 so I started reading Alan Watts books and at the same time uh, got into uh, uh, teachings of Jiddu Krishnamurti, and, um, and so really spoke to me and and of course Krishnamurti really talked about going beyond uh, the traditions and also going beyond thought and so that uh, one uh, really came to unity in this way by uh, uh, going beyond the the limited uh, uh, thought forms of the the ego. But um, after a while um, I moved to Boston and uh, was uh, into the sort of the jazz scene, seeing all the old uh, masters, you know, Dizzy Gillespie and people like that. And uh, uh, so um, Allen Ginsberg giving poetry readings and uh, attended a Sri Tymnoy, uh concert. Uh, but it wasn't until I, I moved back to Nashville that uh, a friend of mine um, <clears throat> I um, am a, an artist uh, as well as uh, a, a sometimes musician and so a friend of mine uh, commissioned me to paint a, a large portrait of uh, a man I'd never heard of named uh, uh, G.I. Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff was the, an Armenian philosopher in the early part of the 20th century and um, and And so actually it was his wife uh, was uh, doing this for his birthday uh, as a surprise. And she said, here's here's some of Gurjeev's books. You might want to read them, see who he is, who you're painting this uh, portrait of. And um, that, uh, I was very interested in that. And the next thing I knew, um, uh, my friend, uh, uh, Joe Naft, It turned out he was leading a Gurdjieff group in uh, Nashville, and he had uh, attended uh, um, a course uh, uh, on the uh, work with um, John Bennett, who was one of the students of Gurdjieff in Sherborne um, in 1974, just before uh, Bennett uh, died. he had also uh, gone to Istanbul and met uh, Sheikh Muzaffar at uh, Bennett's uh, recommendation, and so he was leaving this group and he needed a, uh, a pianist to perform the uh, piano for the people doing the sacred movements. and. Uh, so uh, he uh, asked me if I w- wanted to uh, play the piano for that. And uh, and so I joined the group and I started playing the piano and I was fascinated by the movements as well and the uh, quality of the music, which was a uh, very oriental sounding uh, uh, music uh, that, uh, ha- uh, let's say it, it had something built into it that's really Touched the heart, or some deep remembrance of, uh, of another reality. And so um, I, uh, I got more interested in the Gurdjieff uh, work and uh, there, there was a local um, group that was associated with another one of Gurdjieff's students uh, named Pierre Elliott in Claymont, West Virginia. So uh, I went there for a few uh, uh, kind of Week-long or weekend type of uh, workshops. Pretty soon, uh, I found out that uh, Sheikh Musafer from Istanbul was coming to uh, Claymont uh, to visit with uh, a number of his uh, dervishes, and so my wife and I uh, made the the, uh, the trip there and spent a, a, a beautiful weekend with with Sheikh Musafer. And so that was the first. Sufi teacher, that uh, sheikh that I was uh, um, introduced to, and I, I he he was a very uh, expansive, uh, beautiful being, and, and so we, we were really impressed by the the presence of this this sheikh. And and I remember thinking at the time, if if this is like if this is what one Sufi sheikh is like, what, you know. This is going to be amazing if I start meeting others. And um, and so uh, at the time I didn't know much about uh, Islam, and so he was kind of an Islamic uh, Sufi, and he only spoke Turkish, so I had to speak through a translator. Uh, he led us uh, in the ceremony of zikr, which is a huge uh, circle of concentric circles, and uh, one of the. Uh, um, one of the students was the, the son of the sheikh of Konya, uh, Mevlevi, uh, uh, who does the whirling dervish, uh, the, the whirling. Uh, and uh, is called the turn or sama. And so uh, in the, the uh, zikr that we did with Mustafa Effendi, there was uh, hundreds of us um, uh, all uh, in a circle, uh, uh, moving around the sheikh and uh, also this uh, dervish or turning in the center and of course the symbology of that is that uh, it, it's like the um, uh, planets turning around the sun or the you know the the sheikh uh, represents the spiritual uh, 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 sun or the sustenance uh, just like the guru would in uh, the eastern traditions and um so th- that was that was uh, a really I, I began to read uh, much more on Sufism. I wasn't ready to uh, take initiation at that time because I, I just hadn't uh, checked out sort of uh, what what were the uh, different options available, and uh, I I didn't foresee uh, traveling to Istanbul a lot uh, to uh, confer with a Turkish speaking a sheikh, and so. Um, came back to Nashville, and shortly thereafter, a a friend of mine that I had known for years, uh, who had moved to uh, Georgia, was getting his master's in psychology uh, down there, uh, told me about another Sufi group, uh, which was the Anayati Sufism. They were called the Sufi order in the West at the time. And uh, he was doing, uh, there was a, a, a lovely couple who was leading what they called Sufi dancing. It's actually called the Dances of Universal Peace. And he invited uh, us to come down and and, uh, join and do that with him. So we came down and uh, these dances were um, created out of simple folk dances uh, by a uh, student of Hasrainaid Khan named Murshid Sam Lewis. And he, was, uh, he lived in San Francisco. Uh, uh, he, he was actually an old man by the time that this came through him. He was in his 70s, shortly before he passed away. But he had um, received divine guidance very strongly that, that God spoke to him and said, I appoint you to be the spiritual leader of the hippies. And the idea was to... Uh, give them spiritual food uh, to help them uh, have something besides just drugs. And uh, so he began to, you know, go to Golden Gate Park and, and uh, lead these uh, dances. And they were very simple steps, uh, things that anyone could, could pick up uh, quickly. And the a chance of um, Shri Ram, Jay Ram, Jay Ram, or uh, Allah, Allah, El Rahman, El Rahim. The merciful, the compassionate, kyrie eleison, namu amida butsu. So, uh, so people got a little, little taste of of all these different uh, traditions, even the Zoroastrian uh, tradition, um, and uh, the Taoists, and uh, and the uh, indigenous people. All of these uh, eventually were were brought into the. Dances of Universal Peace. And so when we went down and uh, participated in these, it was such a loving community. And and I had uh, been a, sort of closed off for, for many years and uh, kind of cool and aloof and and sort of intellectual. And, uh, and this really represented the opening of the heart. And I immediately recognized it, that uh, I had found uh, a kind of spiritual home with the Sufis uh, because of this uh, uh, opening of the heart really seemed uh, the, the path for me. And um, <clears throat> so some of the, the Sufi dances are partner dances where you looked uh, directly into the eyes of, of, uh, of people and, and say uh, something like, uh, from you I receive, to you I give, together we share from this we live and we're seeing the uh, we're directed to see the divine light and the other person and uh, and really experience that and there's a lot of hugging and and uh intimacy uh, um and so uh, that uh, that was a real freeing sort of energy for me so um January 1980, I heard that uh, the their spiritual teacher, uh, Pierre Velayat Khan, was coming to Atlanta, and so I went down to see him for a weekend. He was a, a master of meditation, and uh, I could say lots of good things a, a about him, um, but uh, I immediately recognized that this is the person I want to take hand with, um, And uh, so I went to a summer camp uh, at the abode where they they have a a sort of headquarters at an old shaker community uh, in uh, upstate New York, and uh, received, uh, uh, my wife and I both received uh, a bayat or uh, initiation uh, into the Sufi order, the Anayati order, from uh, Pierre Valiat, And so that was my introduction into uh, Sufism. And so I quickly uh, started a, uh, a study group in, in uh, Nashville, where I lived at the time, and I still still live there, and um, started inviting uh, the spiritual teachers to come to Nashville and, and, and give weekends. And we, we actually got Pierre Vilay to come at one point, and uh, a lot of other teachers. And I, I started for the next 10 years, I was traveling uh, all over to Sufi conferences and and it wasn't just Sufis, but they would bring uh, all these uh, healers and uh, teachers from different traditions. And so uh, Swami Sachitananda and I, I first met uh, 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 a Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, who was a Kabbalist who Pir Vilayat had made a shake sheikh in the Sufi order, and he could speak uh, both kabbalistically uh, and in Sufi language, which was a, a great uh, 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 a draw for me to really see someone who who was combining these traditions. and And so later, I, I actually wrote a book including him and uh, and Pir Vilayat and and the way that they they. Uh, it turned out they they actually initiated each other uh, into the tradition. And so uh, all these teachings of the four worlds and, and so forth uh, are brought out in the, in that book.
0: That book is When Oceans Merge, your 2019 book.
1: Yeah, Temporary Teachings of Pirvilayat uh, and Ayat Khan and uh, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi. Yeah, yeah. And um, so at the... Um, to continue the story, uh, I've, I've already mentioned that, of course, Hazrat Naiad Khan was the uh, the teacher behind Pir Vilayat. He was uh, the son of Hazrat Naid Khan, and uh, very much teaching this. Uh, so Hazrat Naiad Khan's teachings, uh, that it's all on the internet now for free, uh, uh, but uh, it originally uh, it was like in uh, twelve what they were called message volumes uh, that uh, contained all of his lectures. And they're very, uh, they're put in very modern English in a way that's very easy to uh, read. It's, it's deceptively profound. Uh, uh, Pierre Villiette, um is, he, he likes to, uh, uh, or he did, um, like to bring in modern physics and things like that. And, and, uh, and some of his writings are, are, are a little more um, intellectually uh, uh, oriented, and yet uh, his whole life mission was really to uh, continue the work of his father. And so <clears throat> that uh, that tradition uh, w- was very rich. Uh, I- I'll say just a little bit more about Pierre Valiat uh, in passing. Um, he- I. Uh, I failed to, to, to say that when uh, I grew up, my father was in the army. And so the first 10 years of my life, we traveled all over. Um, I lived in uh, the, uh, the Southwest and the Southern United States the Northern United States and um, in a town uh, near Paris for three years growing up. And so I always have uh, this, this affinity for, for France. And so, Khasradi Khan ended up uh, living in uh, Syrens, which is a suburb of Paris, and um, also Gurdjieff uh, lived in Paris uh, toward the end of his life, and, and so uh, this, this is another uh, draw. Um, as well as the fact that uh, Naid Khan was a, a great Indian musician, and so uh, uh, as a, uh, a lover of music, uh, I really resonated with a spiritual path that includes uh, music, because music so much more speaks to the heart than than just uh, uh, intellectual formations of, of words. And uh, I actually uh, found a, a, a music teacher, a Hindu. Uh, teacher that and learned uh, Carnatic music for 10 years and, and learned to uh, uh, sing and, and uh, le- play the uh, Saraswati uh, Veena as well and uh, I also play keyboards uh, and when I was in college I learned the mode synthesizer, uh, early analog uh, thing with all the tubes and, and, and so forth. Um, so a uh was also very musically inclined. He studied uh, at the Sorbonne, and uh, he one of his he had uh, guest lectures with Stravinsky, and he took cello lessons from uh, Pablo Casals, and studied with another teacher named Nadia Boulanger, and um, and so he had this rich uh, background in music, and and he considered. Uh, some of the great uh, classical composers such as uh, Bach in particular as uh, spiritual masters who were in touch with the uh, the the cosmic celebration and were actually bringing this through in in their masses and uh, and so sometimes uh, he would have us uh, whirling to Bach uh, and and uh, this reaching the sort of Energy of glorification that that comes through that way, and so all of these things were, were draws. And of course, the uh, the Hindu tradition that comes through uh, the Chistia order, there was all this beautiful uh, meditative music uh, um, that uh, he would use. Yet is a wonderful collection that he had collected over over the years, um, and uh, we, we were. Shared uh, all those musical riches, and um, and so that was that was a, really a strong draw, musical draw. And then uh, and so uh, with um, Mustafa Effendi, uh, also the the musical zikr is it it uh, it's not just chanting, but it uses uh, mystic hymns that are in Turkish that, that are really beautiful, and uh, and so. Uh, it's, a, it's another form of, of this cosmic celebration. So when I met uh, Mustafa Fendi in 1979, uh, I was told that um, there uh, that there was a, a person named Lex Hickson who had interviewed him on the radio. Um, and uh, Lex Hickson, it turned out, had a uh, spot on uh, WBAI in New York City uh, in which he uh, it was called in the spirit program and for uh for uh, about 15 years he interviewed all of the uh spiritual teachers and and gurus um um people like uh, swami Sachitananda and and uh, uh kalu rapache and he even he was even initiated on the show he had these live shows that were hours long and uh, uh, he had Mother Teresa, Alan Watts, and uh, Krishnamurti, and uh, um, a, a lot of uh, different rabbis, like uh, the singing rabbi, uh, Rabbi uh, Shlomo Karbach, uh, Christian scientists, all, all you know, the other work. So he uh, he had Musafer Effendi on the show and uh, did several shows. And so uh, at this uh, when I met Mustafa Effendi, there was an announcement at one point, it said, uh, you can get the, some of these tapes of interviews with Mustafa Effendi, and it has the singing of the mystic hymns and stories from Quran and, and so forth. So I uh, uh, ordered those, <clears throat> and also turned out that Lex had written his first book uh, recently called Coming Home, in which he, uh, he had chapters from uh, many of the great uh, world's uh, mystic traditions, uh, including uh, uh, some philosophers and uh, the Zen ox herding uh, uh, pieces, um, uh, Plotinus, uh, Kierkegaard, um, Krishnamurti, and uh, uh, Meister Eckhart, and and, uh, Baba Muhyadine, who was one of his first uh, spiritual uh, Sufi teacher. and uh, so uh, Lex Hickson was, it, it turned out he was, uh, he was a universalist who was uh, initiated in, in many different paths. And his, his passion in life was to delve deeply into each of these paths. And uh, uh, one of his, his Zen teacher, Bernie Glassman uh, said, Lex Hickson was an interfaith world all to himself. So, so he, uh, um, he first uh, discovered Ramakrishna and, uh, and studied with uh, Swami Nihilananda, who was the, the, the one who had originally translated the gospel of Ramakrishna. And he really got into the, uh, the, that, that path of Ramakrishna and Sri Sarada Devi and uh, Mother Kali. And, and so he really got in, into the, 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 the form of you know, God as Mother, Goddess. And, uh, and then he, he went into a, a Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism, the, uh, uh, the uh, Soto Rinzai uh, fusion form of Zen and the, the uh, Galufa. Uh, uh, actually, he, he, he joined several Tibetan uh, orders and uh, was, was friends with the Dalai Lama. and uh, interviewed him on the show as well. So uh, fast forward, uh, after I've been in the Sufi order, the United order for about uh, uh, eight years, uh, um, Lex uh published a book called Heart of Quran. And this is a book in which he uh, paraphrased the Quran in very loving uh, modern English. And he refers to Allah in, as, uh, a, a, ways like uh the source of being or the the supreme reality or the the source of love Um, and the idea of this book was to really uh, allow western readers to to get past the sort of literal translations of quran to uh feel the love that a a, uh, a, uh, a a deeply spiritual muslim would would uh feel when they uh read the quran in Arabic. And, um, and he had an introduction, uh, a, a quite a lengthy introduction, in which he spoke about his initiation with Muzaffar Effendi, and it, it turned out he had become a khalifa, a sheikh uh, himself, and was leading um, uh, a, a Sufi order, the Halveti Jirahi order, in uh, Manhattan, in the so- Soho uh, a, a region. And uh, he uh, was translating the Turkish ilahis, uh, the mystic hymns into English. And so all of this, I uh, immediately, uh, my ears perked up when I, when I heard that. It was like, I've been, I, I love Pir Belayet and the uh, United Order, but I, this, this idea of really delving into the mysteries of, uh, of authentic, uh, the dervish way appealed to me, and so I um, checked around. This is all pre-internet, of course, but somehow I found uh, the phone number of, uh, of the, uh, uh, the Sufi Lodge in, in New York and called it, and they, they said, call back on Thursday night, and, and uh, Alex Hickson, who we call Sheikh Noor, will, uh, will speak with you then. And so when I, I called, he came to the phone, and first thing he did was offered me a, a different spiritual name. Uh, over the phone. He, and uh, I told him I'd been having uh, spiritual dreams of Lucifer Effendi calling to me. And he said, well, you, then you've received the call and it's no accident that you uh, read the book and, and heard the tape and uh, had those dreams. And so next time you come through New York, stop by my house and and uh, you can uh, uh, take initiation. So uh, I uh, I cleared that with uh, Pierre Veliat and my uh, uh, spiritual guide in, in the Aniati order um, got got that permission to uh, take hand uh, with in the uh, Jirahi uh, order, and um, and so uh, like Dixon, uh, where Pierre Valliate had thousands uh, of uh, miroirs of of. Uh, um, students and it was hard to get an interview with him and so it was rare you know like the, when he came and stayed with us it, that was a really rare opportunity to have one-on-one intimate time with the teacher uh, and sometimes you, you would get an interview of 15 minutes or something in some city but uh, Sheikh Noor was it turned out he was much more accessible and he would, uh, he would actually he said I'm going to start coming down to Nashville I'll, I'll uh, do a little weekend workshops and, and stay with you and uh, and uh, j- just uh, call me anytime uh, we'll, we'll discuss your spiritual uh, training and um, and so there was a, a new level of spiritual intimacy like a spiritual older brother uh, so to speak uh, with with Sheikh Noor and uh, he had only translated uh, about 20 of the mystic hymns at, at that time. And I had listened to those tapes over the years and, and really loved all those mystic hymns I had heard. And, and so I, I decided to uh, dabble at it myself and, uh, and sent him a few uh, uh, translations to see what he thought. And uh, he, he said, this is great. Uh, he said, if you don't mind, I, I may tweak them a little bit. And pretty soon we were collaborating on uh, on doing uh, these uh, uh, translations that they're, they're not um, so much translations but uh, reworking of the mystic hymns and also the new insights of modern dervishes uh, come through in these uh, so sometimes uh, the original lyrics would be thrown out and a whole new set of of words would come through so uh that uh, that lasted for um four years, five years uh, uh, being with uh, with Sheikh Noor, and then uh, he uh, developed uh, colon cancer and passed away. And uh, so that was uh, the, the, um, about a year before he passed, uh, I had started going to Istanbul and uh, was connecting with the uh, Grand Sheikh who was the successor of Muzaffar Effendi, who died in 1985. Uh, Sefer Effendi was uh, the name of the, the teacher that uh, took over as the Grand Sheikh after that. And so by uh, 1994, you know, I'd been in Sufism for uh, 14 years at that time. And um, I, uh, w- when I went to Istanbul to visit the Grand Sheikh, uh, he um, Gave me the uh, permissions of a uh, sheikh, and asked uh, me to take the uh, turban of the uh, order back to America and the 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 ijazat, the certification, uh, and have Sheikh Noor do the investment ceremony. And so that I would say, actually, the first uh, sheikh that uh, was ordained by uh, Sheikh Noor and then uh, after Sheikh Noor passed, I went back to Istanbul and, and made the Hajj with uh, a Effendi and a, a group of about a hundred Dervishes uh, went to the pilgrimage, Mecca and Medina, and uh, he uh, reinstated, he, he uh, put the turban on and made, did the ceremony again with with further permissions like uh, dream interpretations and and uh, and uh, the permissions to lead the zikr ceremony and to uh, uh, give guidance to uh, uh, students and, and things like that. So uh, after Sheikh Noor passed, um, there was a, a little bit of a crisis. I was say, okay, uh, I um, have uh, no longer really um, connected with Pir Vilayad, except on the inner plane, and uh, uh, my uh, Sheikh Noor has passed away, and, and so I had to decide if I was going to become a spiritual independent or um, seek guidance elsewhere, and uh, and so I I, I did a, a deep meditation and and just asked uh, went within and asked what is the next step what should I be doing, and uh, and so uh, the the method I used for that was to to just. Um, ask the question and then become totally silent and blank uh, as much as possible uh, for about a half an hour. At the end of that time, I got a very clear answer It said, uh, you, should, uh, you should write a book. And I thought, well, that's perfect because I had been given uh, uh, boxes and boxes of uh, uh, audio tapes of Muzafer uh, Mustafa Effendi's, uh uh teachings and uh, the uh, music of the Jirahis. I had uh, uh, I had so so many uh, recordings and, and that, again this was still before the uh, uh, prevalence of, of YouTube where you can download almost any uh, <laughs> thing you want to and um, I was traveling to uh, to Istanbul and and I was learning, hearing all these uh, great stories uh, about the Sufis from uh, uh, my sheikh there. Uh, And I knew these were stories that had never uh, really been published uh, in uh, English. They were only in Turkish. So I had a a whole network of uh, friends who spoke Turkish and could help translate uh, uh, these uh, texts and um, and so uh, they were very gracious in, in uh, helping me out with that. And so uh, also the Grand Sheikh uh, was uh, was very um, he, he supported this uh, this idea and and, uh, and so what I came up with was the, the idea to write a book in which I followed the uh, growth of Sufism from the time of the prophet and his first... Uh, uh, mystical heir Hazrat Ali, all the way down to modern times through the Halfeti jirahi order, and uh, <clears throat> covering the uh, the great early Sufis and and uh, show all of the different ideas uh, that uh, each one contributed and how the path grew, and then uh, somewhere in the Middle Ages, I'll start narrowing it down to the Turkish tradition and uh, so the uh, tradition actually, uh, it started in, with the prophet in Arabia, and then it went to Central Asia during the Middle Ages. And uh, there, the uh, Helveti, or they called it the Kawati order, uh, formed in uh, Central Asia and Egypt. And this was a, a Middle Ages uh, Tariqat or Sufi order that specialized in uh, meditative retreats. So they, a kawat or, or, or a helvet is a uh, spiritual retreat. And so the Sufis uh, uh, were very much into long retreats, uh, 40 days. Sometimes uh, the Mevlevis, the whirling doors, would do a 101 day uh, retreat, uh, 1001 days, so over uh, more than a year. Uh, and when they would come out, just transformed. Human beings. Uh, in, in more modern times, uh, it's with the, the sort of um, speed up of, of time that uh, we see in in, uh, in uh, uh, the 20th and 21st century. Uh, the the thing has become much more streamlined, and so uh, people nowadays do much shorter retreats. Uh, uh, Three days, or or possibly a week. Uh, people can do uh, longer retreats if they like, but uh, it's thought that a kind of a series of, of shorter retreats uh, uh, works for people. And um, and so this uh, Helveti or Kawati order in the Middle Ages um, moved eventually to uh, Anatolia. Um, in the time of Jalaluddin Rumi, the famous Sufi uh, poet and uh, and Murshid, um, and um, it finally came to Istanbul with the uh, founding of the Ottoman Empire. <clears throat> uh, incidentally, there, on uh, Netflix now there's there's uh, a, a plethora of of Turkish uh, adventure t- uh, shows. One on Ertuğrul, who was the father of Osman and one on Osman, he was the founder of the Ottoman Empire. And so uh, uh, <clears throat> this uh, order uh, uh, came to Istanbul and in the uh, uh, around the turn of the 18th century, uh, a uh, another uh, Sufi arose named Pir Nuruddin Jarahi, who uh, was considered the last of the great uh, Sufi uh, peers, peers, a founding uh, uh, teacher of an order who starts their own order. And um, it was a kind of a synthetic uh, order in in that uh, uh, teachers from all the different orders like the uh, Qadri order and the uh, Medlevi order uh, and uh, the Rafai order, all these different orders, uh, the Nachpandi order, uh, they all um, received dreams uh, from their uh, sort of founding peers, uh, telling them to give spiritual gifts uh, to Pir Anuradin Jirahi. Uh, and, and so they, uh, they came, and some of them brought uh, symbolic uh, staff of the order and things like that. And some of them gave um, things like the Mevlevis, gave the whirling, uh, and uh, some gave the circling uh, zikr and uh, the standing zikr, and and so, the Helveti Jirahis uh, uh, became a, a new order, and um, that the uh, Pir Nordin Jirahi died in 1720, and uh, the uh, the zikr that is uh, the ceremonia that's done is, is one of the richest in in all of uh, Sufism. It, it uh, uh, and so this this is something that is is really um, a, a real draw. Let's say for me personally, uh, to uh, I, I love to lead the Zikr and to participate in it because uh, there's a real. Uh, it, it really is a transformative uh, practice that uh, embodies uh, uh, the the divine energies and also the. Uh, this union with the people in the circles. So there, there's a sense of uh, a sort of confraternity of, of, of brothers and sisters uh, be, becoming uh, lost in collective consciousness, uh, uh, so to speak, a, a kind of unity that uh, uh, ecstasy that comes through in, in the zikr. So, uh, that, uh, that That is uh, what the, the book uh, what brings, that that order, the Helveti-Jirahi order, through the silsala, each of those uh, uh, sheikhs is uh, is sort of uh, given a little bit of their story and, and their uh, specific contributions, right down to um, the time of the closing of the tekas, And I, I decided to... Uh, in the book at that point, uh, because it seemed like a good point to, to start uh, the sequel, which was a biography of Muzefer Effendi and how he brought it to America. Uh, and, and also he he traveled in, in Europe, in Germany and uh, other um, other countries, uh, but uh, it took on a new flavor and, and there was actually a uh, a hadith, a saying of the Prophet Muhammad that he said that there will come a time in which the sun of Islam that is shining in the east will shine in the west. And so Muzaffar Effendi uh, uh, really uh, felt that this was talking about uh, our times and that uh, he was uh, the one who had uh, the wherewithal to uh, to bring that to America. So in Turkey where the, uh, the, the uh, Sufi orders had been shut down for many years, uh, Muzaffar Effendi had sort of opened them up and the uh, government gradually in the 50s, 60s started loosening up a little bit on this. And by the late 70s, they decided that it would be good for tourism to export the Mevlevi dervishes and have them come do the uh, the turning ceremony uh, in Europe and the United States and so those were the first sufi uh, islamic sufis that uh, came to the United States so before that uh, <clears throat> the hazrat and aid khan uh, sufism was was kind of the main uh, uh, form of sufism that uh, existed in the United States and so uh, after the Mevlevis came and <clears throat> they performed in in uh, all the major cities and uh, and really drew big crowds and enthusiasm. People started. This was kind of the genesis of people reading uh, Jalaluddin Ruby's poetry. And I think Coleman Barks uh, popularized it and, and put it into very um, e- easy to uh, embrace um, English uh, for people. It's not always you know perfect translation, but. Uh, It's something that people can really uh, relate to and quote. And so uh, it was shortly after that that uh, Muzaffar Effendi uh, also had the opportunity to bring the Helveti Jirahi dervishes and and their uh, uh, zikr ceremony to the United States. And so they uh, uh, did that. And uh, that's uh, when uh, Sheikh Noor first interviewed him. And and they Went around to the churches and uh, and various places, uh, demonstrating this and inviting a people of all faiths to join the outer circle and and make this huge circle of of uh, of, of, of men and women of, of every uh, persuasion. And the uh, Farahendi would would stand in the middle and start waving his arms like, "Come, come, everyone!" <laughs> and uh, you know, he, he said it. He said, "I'm not looking to go around to the mosque and and get uh, uh, fundamentalist Muslims. I'm looking for the people who are open-hearted uh, that are spiritually seeking from whatever religion. We want to open the doors of of uh, union to uh, to them and get them chanting the divine names. And that's that's what I'm here to do. And so uh, to open the, the the hearts of people and." Uh, and so that was that was really the spirit in which uh, he brought Sufism to the West. And he he was very uh, uh, he didn't want to export uh, Ottoman Sufism like with the old forms, like you have to speak Turkish or something like that to to get this. And so that's what one of the reasons he really loved and appreciated uh, Sheikh Noor was because he was um, such a universalist and really understood divine unity from so many points of view and immediately recognized that Islam was also bringing the same unity uh, that is uh, uh, brought through the ages and uh, was very clear on that and was able to bring that into the American culture and bring it into the uh, English language. Uh, And so that, that was the way in which uh, the, the more Islamic uh, version of uh, Sufism uh, came to this country. And so that's uh, that's how these uh, first books uh, came into being. So...
0: Uh, and that book, uh, your, the last book you're mentioning there is Lifting the Boundaries.
1: Lifting the Boundaries, yeah. Um, so that's uh, the, the life of uh, Muzaffar Fendi and, and the transmission of of uh sufism a uh, turkish sufism mm. to uh to the west so he wasn't the first person to bring sufism to the west uh, that, that and so i don't mean that by the title but uh he uh he was uh one of the people who brought the uh, the more islamic uh, form of sufism to the west and so i find i teach from both of these different uh, sufi orders uh I find them complementary, And so my, uh, my teaching style is a, is a kind of mixture of the two. And so I, I try to take the, the, the best of both worlds. And so I take the, uh, uh, I, I love, Pierre Velayat was a teacher, a, a master of meditation. And it's, he would lead long meditations and uh, that's not so much the focus of the uh, Jirahis, but then they have this rich uh, zikr and the, the riches of Islam uh, that uh, is is their specialty, and so uh, the the two the two go together uh, well for me. And Sheikh Noor actually uh, was had joined both orders, uh, so uh, he he joined many things, and so uh, uh, he was a person after my own heart.
0: <laughs> Fascinating. So I'm curious about you're being um, initiated as a, a sheikh. Would that be the right word? Initiated? Invested?
1: Yeah, uh-huh. we use the, the term bayat, um, meaning initiation, but yeah, it's or taking hand uh, with lots of ways of, of. Uh, but it, it's actually a ceremony in, in which uh, the uh, you, you take the, the right hand of the sheikh, and there's a sort of a transmission of energy, and so that that it, it's thought that the the, the light of uh, that has come down through all of these uh, the, the, uh, of prophecy and through the Prophet Muhammad and through all of these uh, sheikhs, uh is uh, comes through uh, to a greater or lesser degree through the teacher into the student and and so that there's a, that that uh, it's a spiritual transmission
0: and that's at the point. Where one joins the order, or the point where one becomes a sheikh.
1: Um, well, both. There's uh, you can be a friend of the order, and just uh, you, can, you can be a, a Buddhist or a, a Jew or Christian, and and like to come and and, and join the, the zikr and uh, uh, listen to the teachings, and and that's that's it. Or um, uh, like. Uh, Rabbi Zaman Shachter used to come come up to New York from Philadelphia and, and join this big Zikr circle with Muzafer Fendi, and, and they became great friends as well. And uh, so that's that's the level of, uh, it's called a Muhib, a friend of the order. And then there's the, uh, if, if one uh, gets initiated as a, a dervish in the order, or a Murid in the Anayati order, that's, a I think, a Persian a word for it. Um, then one is embarking on the path and the training and uh, the, the uh, personal relationship with the sheikh and one is given practices at that time. And, um, and then becoming a sheikh is not necessarily uh, what happens to everyone. That's uh, uh, just, uh, <clears throat> in the uh, Hewati Jirahi order there's an emphasis on dreams and dream interpretation uh, that is not in all the other orders. And so there are um, sometimes mystic dreams that come through that are um, uh, recognizable in, in being far beyond the, uh, the level of, of, of usual dreams that, that one might have. And, and sometimes these uh, contain profound teachings and symbols. And one is in the uh, Jirahi order, one uh, tells these uh, first to one's uh, sheikh or sheikah if uh, if your teacher is uh, a, a woman um, uh, and they're interpreted. And, and some of the, uh, these help uh, the teacher see the spiritual state of the uh, student through the dreams. And of course, other indications, but it's it's usually more of an inner sense rather than from externals and it's it's definitely not how intellectual or how much one knows or something like that Uh, but uh, it's it's an attunement uh, that uh, the sheikh senses with the eye of the heart so to speak and um, and so um, I I was surprised when I was uh, made a sheikh uh, because I I wasn't really uh, looking for that and it's usually not a good sign if a person is is striving to become uh, a spiritual leader but uh, it's something that is, is more uh, given to one and then it becomes one's uh, one's karma one's duty to uh, to make use of that and to pass on uh, what one can and so I found that uh, that that uh, writing books and sharing uh with people that way was one of the uh one of the best ways i had of uh of sharing this and i felt it was a a kind of obligation to some of these teachers that i knew personally and and had uh had all these intimate conversations with to to pass that uh the the those on to other people and so um Maybe in a few generations, when when none of us are around, people will be looking back to those books as source material, and uh, so it's it's a, a privilege to have been given access to all that, uh, those riches. I actually had a dream uh, just about the time I joined the Habechi Jirahi Order, that uh, I was. Um, in a, uh, a hallway uh, outside of a door where Musa uh, uh, Effendi was. And uh, there was a stand with a uh, great bejeweled book sitting on it. And I was handed this book and told to open it. And I said, you will be given these uh, the, the inner secrets of this uh, book. And it had uh, in the... Uh, Margins where Musa Farfendi had written uh, annotations, uh, and so it, it was—it uh, was, was like a, a dream that really uh, symbolically showed that uh, that, that was uh, part, going to be part of of uh, my path.
0: Are there special dream practices or techniques within that order, or does one simply interpret the dreams that uh, one has? Somewhat, should we say? naturally or spontaneously?
1: Uh, Well, uh, whether one is in in order or not, one has to ask for a dream uh, and and one can intentionally uh, ask for a dream on a particular thing, or even if you have a dream that's unclear, you can ask for uh, clarification. And uh, there's actually, uh, you can do two rakats of of, uh, salat, of prayer Uh, before you go to bed and and ask for a dream that's that's kind of a a formal formalized way but the the point is that the you put the intention out to have the dream um, and uh, and maybe put uh, if you're really wanting to not forget the dream but have something to write it down by your bedside and uh, uh, incidentally I I found that I I had amazing dreams during uh Sheikh Nur's time especially when he would be visiting uh, I would have these mystic dreams uh, like of the Prophet Muhammad or of Jesus and um, uh, uh, it and, and so many other people reported the same thing and then after he passed away I, I would dream of him occasionally but um, uh, it uh, the the level of, of these mystic dreams uh, died down somewhat after, after his passing. And so uh, there's something about the, the spiritual influence of of the uh, the sheikh that evokes uh, this, this spiritual energy as some kind of entrainment that, uh, that brings it through and, and the student begins you know, kind of resonating and vibrating in attunement with it, with the teacher. It's, it's sort of like getting their, their software, so to speak, and so that you uh, really um, enter the mind and the heart of, of the Sheikh. I also want to mention that with the with the book after that, um, when oceans merge, that with the first two books, I had tried to purvey um, the kind of traditional Sufism as I received it, and tried to put it into the most updated language and, and kind of the, the most uh, um, loving interpretation uh, um, after the the kind of spirit of of um, of my teacher uh, Sheikh Noor and uh, but then uh, I wanted to also uh, go to this this place of universalism and really uh, and what are the the far out uh, ramifications of of uh of Sufism and uh, the uh, and and Kabbalah and and where where would that take us in a book and so I found Pir Velayat was the one that was really uh, putting out those uh, those more uh, modern interpretations and and and, and kind of uh, trailblazing uh, the Sufi universal path and, uh, and so I, I decided that. Uh, Rather than writing about my, my own uh, spiritual journey or something that that I would uh, incorporate it to, by talking about the, uh, the transmitting what my teachers uh, uh, taught and, and and kind of do it that way and and in that way I was able to really uh, go into this whole uh, business of uh, of Kabbalistic teaching of course the Tree of Life there's the uh, 10 sefirot, which uh, correlate very closely with the divine attributes in Sufism, and then the, uh, showing how these four worlds operate in, in Kabbalah and in uh, Sufism, and then how scripture can be read on a literal level, and then a, a, an allegorical level, and then a mystical level, and then a level uh, that, that transcends words altogether such as a saying like, uh, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the true Tao, you know, uh, so there's, there's some that actually point beyond the, the text itself. And, uh, and so, uh, and also the Reb Zoman had this whole teaching that, that fascinated me uh, about uh, paradigm shifts in religion, how religion had gone through various uh, ages, and he, uh, this was uh, taught to him uh, in uh, Lubavitcher, uh, Hasidus. Uh, he was actually born in um, uh, in, um, in Europe before World War II and had to, es- he and his family had to escape the Nazis, but uh, he, he be- became an orthodox uh, rabbi, but then he started hanging around with uh, Tim Leary and doing acid and uh, uh, Alan Watts and uh, uh, Gerald Hurd uh, uh, and um, m- many uh, more people that that don't come to mind. Uh, Heschel was one of his teachers, and uh, and so he he really expanded and uh, and and was interested in Jewish renewal. And so he he showed how, uh, for instance, just to take Judaism as an example, you you first had uh, the uh, primitive um, uh, god of the desert and the uh, portable sanctuary and the temple and uh, the ark of the covenant and and then uh, in the time of solomon you had it was more solidified into uh, a temple and then the animal sacrifices came and that was for for hundreds of years and then there was the uh, second temple was destroyed and the animal sacrifices with it then you had rabbinic Judaism, and then you had um, the holy days became the the temple in time, and uh, God was seen more as the anima mundi, the uh, soul of the universe, and so uh, God uh, traveled through these uh, uh, stages of being very anthropomorphic and out there and then uh, becoming more like the soul of the universe and then so it goes from uh, the the different astrological ages you can see uh, Taurus to Aries, uh, the ram with the chauffeur and then the uh, um, the Pisces and you have the two fishes uh, swimming around and you still have uh, people in dichotomies black and white and the opposites uh, but they don't realize they're they're unified, they're still swimming in the same sea and there's a secret unity there. And then the age of Aquarius, the water bearer is bringing us the uh, feminine values and uh, what Reb Zalman called echo kosher. Uh, instead of deciding if you know, certain you know, gefilte fish or something is, is emblematic of Judaism, how about checking if nuclear power is kosher and these sorts of issues. And so there's a, a new and, and of course I mentioned that uh, he he very much uh, liked the model of Teilhard de Chardin uh, that uh, the universe was was gradually uh, uh, going from the biosphere the physical level to the sphere, the mental started to accumulate and then eventually we uh, the the divine uh, uh, level uh, begins to manifest through us and so. Um, uh, like Hasra and Khan would say, make God a reality and God will make you the truth. So we're, we're uh, becoming, uh, uh, and the embodiment of, uh, of the divine, uh, through the limited human form. And, uh, and so, uh, that, that whole idea that, uh, religion, uh, has to be renewed in every age and reinterpreted and, uh, Modern hum- hermeneutics applied uh, is is really a, an area that fascinated me, and so uh, I wanted to uh, really um, put that material into that book when oceans merge, and so um, uh, and also I, I put an appendix. I, I wanted to uh, uh, to really go into uh, what would it look like for the gospels of christianity to be read on an allegorical level and go beyond the literal meaning and it it really opens up uh, some some beautiful things so I was able to put that as an appendix in the book and bring in uh, not only sufism and and kabbalah but uh, the the christian mystic uh, perspective um uh, and so uh that that was uh, that book and so the the next one that's just about to come out is on Lex Hickson. and uh, it uh, it's called uh, living open space the spiritual inner spiritual journey of uh, Lex Hickson. and it covers all of his spiritual paths and his ideas of how he he didn't want to merge them together but to really keep the, the uh, beauty of each each mystical tradition alive and and it felt that if people dive to the mystical roots of their own tradition, that would be the, uh, the saving grace. And so in these days when we see so much the the, the rise of nationalism and fundamentalism, which is, is a, a kind of a, a fear response uh, of, uh, of the esoteric religion, of the exoteric, uh, Sheikh Nur didn't think uh, a small new age groups were the answer, but that, that the, the main religions have these mystical depths in them. We just need to bring them out. And so uh, that's, this, this book really delves into that material. And so uh, that will be coming out um, uh, just in, in a few months, hopefully in the late spring of uh, uh, 2021.
0: Fascinating. Gregory, I have so many more questions. I think we could go on and on. We might have to do a sequel, you know, if you don't mind. Particularly your book, When Oceans Merge, I think, has so much interesting uh, themes there that would be really worth a conversation in itself. And I'm very interested also to the degree to which you delved into Kabbalah with Rabbi Zalman shachar with whom you studied. Uh, and also your new book coming, also very fascinating. So I might have to, well, I'm going to invite you now to do a sequel uh, and dive more into these themes. I think we could keep going. What do you think?
1: MashaAllah, <laughs> that, that, uh, that sounds like a plan.
0: Great. Okay, well, I think we're going to have to end it here, but thank you so much. That was extraordinarily fascinating, and I look forward to part two.
1: Yeah, and I, uh, I appreciate your questions and uh, look forward to seeing you again.
0: Gregory Bland, thank you very much.
1: Please be with you and the audience. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast.